Hey, it's Francis. This week, we're bringing back a really wonderful episode from a while back, featuring the absolutely iconic Linda Ronstadt and her writing partner, Lawrence Downs, talking about the food of the Sonoran Desert that she loves so much. And Professor Natalia Molina talks about her super smart book, A Place at the Nayarit, about how a restaurant can be the heart of a community. Check it out. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Look, I'm just going to say it. It is pretty wild that I get to introduce our first guest today. I'm Linda Ronstadt, and it's nice to be with you. So Linda Ronstadt is, of course, one of the truly great singers of American music, right? She was a rock and roll superstar in the 70s. She's also an iconic country singer and, oh, by the way, made the all-time best-selling Spanish language album in America. And that last part is especially interesting because when she released Canciones de mi Padre in 1987, like, a lot of her fans may not even have known that her family was Mexican. Her record label didn't want her to make the album. It was initially dismissed by Rolling Stone magazine, who called it a party gag. But she made a classic. And that, in some ways, was the beginning of what became a lifelong journey of honoring her family, her heritage, advocating for migrants, and shining a light on the beauty of the borderlands culture of the Southwest, of her native Arizona and the Sonoran Desert her family came from. And... While Linda retired from singing about 10 years ago because of a Parkinson's-like condition, she's still telling stories about the place she's from. She's a new book called Feels Like Home. It's a collaboration with her friend Bill Steen, who's a photographer, and Lawrence Downs, who's a wonderful writer. And it's a mix of stories, photos, and this is why we get to have her, recipes of her Sonoran cuisine. We had a chance to record Linda talking about some of her thoughts about the book. And joining me now to talk about Linda and this book is her collaborator, Lawrence Downs. Hey, Lawrence, it's great to talk with you. Hi, Francis. It's a beautiful book that you've written with Linda. So, and as I understand it, years ago, maybe almost 10 years ago, you actually wrote an article for the New York Times about taking a road trip with Linda Ronstadt. Uh, I think you went out of her hometown in Tucson, Arizona. You went down into the Sonoran Desert in Mexico, where her family is from, and I think the idea was to see how her music was influenced by the music she grew up with. But now, like almost a decade later, you traveled with her there again. What led you to redo that trip and to write a book about this place with her? Well, it started out um, kind of odd and very simply as a cookbook. Um, she she emailed me mm-hmm. because a friend of hers had this idea to do a a benefit cookbook uh, with Arizona recipes from folks who are from Arizona. So it was her friend Cece Goldwater, who's from Phoenix and the Phoenix area, Linda's from Tucson, and their mutual friend Bill Steen, who's also from Tucson and lives in southern Arizona. And the idea was we'd collect a whole bunch of uh, recipes and tell the story of these families, the Goldwaters, uh, go way back in Arizona, as do the Ronstadts and the Steens. Um, and tie it all together with food. But the more we thought about it, the more we thought that um, an Arizona cookbook uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not, it's not so much a coherent food mm. place. It's, it's 
definitely a state, but what you get and eat and know about in like Scottsdale and Sedona versus Tucson or Yuma is very mm. different. And the more we thought about it, the more we wanted to focus it on a place that was kind of coherent and contiguous and hadn't been written about before. And that's when I realized in talking with Linda that there's this area of southern Arizona, northern Mexico, roughly called the Sonoran borderlands, or the Sonoran Desert. Some of it goes a little beyond technically what's in the Sonoran Desert, but it's all pretty much um, the same space with the same story about um, uh, Spanish conquest and indigenous populations that have lived there for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And Linda's family is a big part of that story. And as it so happens, the U.S.-Mexico border cuts right through the middle of it. And because we both feel strongly about border issues and the militarization of that place and the troubling things that have happened there, we wanted to mm -hmm. kind of to make a point about this special place that even within the U.S., even within Arizona, uh, people don't know a lot about and, um, the food and the music. And it was all very special to her. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's listen to her talk about the place. Growing up, we had ways of, if we'd walk across the ground, the ground would get so hot it would burn our feet. So we'd keep our feet in mud, and then in dry sand, and then in mud again. And you had mud warachis, and it wouldn't hurt your feet. The landscape is like no other place on earth. We've got these great saguaro cactuses that stand up like soldiers and wave their arms at you. It takes so long to grow. One that's up to my waist takes 100 years to grow. So there are old saguaros there that were young saguaros when Cortez was marching through the, the territory. They're only found within a, a few miles of each other um, in Arizona and no place else on earth. So when I see them, I know I'm home. Yeah. I love that image, right, that she started with, right, of her making little mud sandals to keep her feet cool while walking in the hot desert. But, you know, so you're not from this area, right? And I think probably, I would guess, most people who aren't from the desert, I imagine when they go to the desert, they just kind of see desert, you know, like they see what's not there. There's no water. Maybe mm -hmm. to their eye, there's no signs of life. But what struck you about traveling this landscape and in particular with her? This is what was most amazing for me and why I most wanted to go back to it because I had that vision as someone who was from outside. You know, I'm from Hawaii, which is pretty green and wet. And you fly mm -hmm. over the desert and you think there's nothing down there. Right. But of course, as Linda explained and as I saw, um, you know, there's beautiful, beautiful vegetation. You, you see what you see in old black and white Western movies looks pretty hot, and pretty dry, and pretty barren. But when you're there, among all the saguaros and the Palo Verde trees, you know, I hadn't known until Linda explained and her friend Bill explained to me as well, you know, there's this tree that grows all over this area called the Palo Verde, which is green bark. Um, and in hmm. the springtime, it explodes in these yellow blossoms. And I've, more than one person oh, has told me that, you know, the tidal basin cherry trees have nothing on <laughs> the Sonoran <laughs> Desert Palo Verdes because you look around and it's like this extravagant, lavish uh, bursting of color, color in life. And 
that's kind of the theme that Linda keeps stressing to me when we when we go down there is that as harsh as it might be, and it certainly is, you know, there are things in the desert that will kill you, this the the sun and the creatures and the cactus thorns and all that. But if you know how to live within it and if you live in a cooperative way and you figure mm. it out, you can live a, a a a good life with a lot of beauty and a lot of deliciousness and a lot of um enjoyment. And that's kind of the story of how um her family uh, lived in and loved this place. And it's not mm. so much, as I kind of mentioned early in the book in the introduction, there's people who live in the desert who want to conquer the desert and, and defeat it, you know, with air conditioning and, and, and golf courses and, and whatever. But, mm. but if you figure out a way to live within it, um, you can extract uh, a pretty good life. Yeah. I love that you're, you know, this, this image you have, the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the desert is, are these beautiful trees with their blossoms mm-hmm. and their flowers. And, you know, it's, that's the opposite, right? That's right. what a flower is. A flower is the propagation of life. It's like the opposite of barrenness. And it actually reminds me of a, a conversation I had um, last year with a chef from Alaska um, who was quite far. Um, her restaurant is near uh, Denali, or in Denali National Park, um, so pretty far, you know, away from the cities of Alaska. And I asked her, "What's the first thing when she thinks of Alaska and the tundra?" And she said, "Abundance," which again oh, is sort of the opposite. Exactly. And I think it's that thing, right? It's like, oh, when like this is such a cliche, but like light shines brightest in the dark, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, when you're in this place where you assume there's nothing there, and you start to find it, it feels incredibly um, rich and meaningful. It's like there's no limits to human ingenuity and what you can extract out of a landscape that looks barren. One thing that Linda always talks about when she talks about how harsh and dangerous and difficult the desert can be to live in, about how um, because of that, the cooperation, the cooperative culture that emerges among ranchers, farmers, um, folks who live there, is very strong, and she really admires and and loves that sense of interdependence that people um, have when they're living out in the desert. Because if you don't have that, you don't survive. Oh yeah, we actually have a clip of her speaking to that too. It's an interesting thing the way the, way the Mexican ranchers live. American ranchers will buy a huge plot of land and put their house right in the middle, so it's totally isolated. Mexican cowboy will live in a village. And they share. They all live in the village, and they share the the lands around them, the grazing lands around them, so they can run their cattle. And it, it's a very cooperative environment. And it's a very highly moral environment because when you have to cooperate, when you have to depend on somebody else to help you put up a fence, you don't steal your neighbor's car or break into your neighbor's house. So it keeps everybody straight. They always say that the only time. The boys get in trouble is when they go to work for the wage up in the United States, and that they lose their family support, they lose their sense of community. Yeah, that's so interesting. Okay, let's let's get to the food a little bit. So, you know, the book I loved reading it, and it has all these different forms, right? It's a it's an unusual book. It's that's travelogue. Sure. It's family memoir. It has these old letters from Linda's grandmother. I think a whole chapter is just letters mm-hmm. from her grandmother. Um, and it has recipes. Like you said, it may have started as a cookbook. It's not really a cookbook now. 
But there are all these recipes from family and friends, so let's talk about that after the break. We're talking with Lawrence Downs about Feels Like Home, a song for the Sonoran Borderlands, a book he wrote with Linda Ronstadt. We'll be back with more of them in a minute. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. Right now, we're talking with Lawrence Downs, co-author of Linda Ronsat's book, Feels Like Home a song for the Sonoran borderlands. Let's get back to our conversation. I know Linda says she's not a huge cook, but, you know, these recipes are an important part of just her, not just her story, but the story of the place. And here she is talking about that. Well, food is a part of a culture. I didn't cook, but I watched people cook as I was growing up. And the first thing I noticed when I moved out of Arizona was that they didn't have good tortillas. The way the Sonoran <laughs> women make them is they, they use a good good wheat just to start with. It tastes has more flavor. And they make them out of flour and water and sometimes lard. And they pat them out really big. They're as big as a steering wheel. So you can wrap them and layer them. It's, it's, like, it's like fine pastry. It's, you know, it's a technique. You have to learn it from, a, from childhood. And it's very labor-intensive. Have you seen the... I mean, you must have traveled those tortillas. Yes, it's an amazing thing to see. And again, this is maybe an example where someone coming from outside like me can be dazzled um, anew, uh, something that a, a native Tucsonan would say, well, yeah, that's just the way things are here. But mm-hmm. um, when you watch these things being made, so the difference between a flour tortilla in Sonora and the one you'd get at, you know, the one that I'd get at my supermarket on Long Island is like <laughs> vastly different. The first thing is just that they're very, very thin, 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 and flaky. So by comparison, the ones you get in the plastic bag are like, they're like potholders, you know, <laughs> it's like yeah, you yeah, take sure. them and they're soft and fluffy. But these ones, um, uh, because of that thinness, they become crisp when you crisp them up for cheese crisps, and they're just very um, delicious when you eat them. And watching them being made is um, is dazzling. It's it's we all know the the basic movements because it's like you we've all seen people make pizza, right? So you have you okay. start with a little ball of dough and you toss it back and forth and you make the disc, mm-hmm. and the disc gets bigger and bigger, and then it becomes big enough for a pizza, but. A, a, a woman making a sonoran tortilla is just getting started at that point <laughs> and it just keeps going beyond which beyond the point where you think it would make any sense and there's photos in the book that you'll see where if you didn't know it was a tortilla you'd think she was hanging laundry you know like like linen oh, wow. or something because they're they're so thin you can see through them they hold together they're very stretchy and it's it's nothing nothing special it's just you know uh, Flour, water, salt, and fat, lard, maybe a little less lard to make it um, stretchier, but um, um, it's tricky. I've tried to make them, <laughs> and as Linda and I discussed, you have to kind of learn these from your mother when you're three. <laughs> and if you don't, <laughs> you can keep trying, and you'll make um, re- you could make reasonable facsimiles, maybe twelve or fourteen inches wide, and 
but you're most likely to make, as Linda says, you make amoebas because <laughs> they <laughs> they kind of reach out and the the, the, cir- the perfect circularity is amazing to see because they place them on top of these outdoor comals, these kind of convex, like upside down walks, but much bigger, uh, over an open fire, and they'll they'll make the shape and then they'll drape it over the hot um, comal with a and then with fingertips lift it up pull it off, turn it over again, and then they're done. And then they'll go make another one. And then they'll make like three dozen of those. And wow. imagine doing that on a hot Arizona day. Yeah. Um, and so you said, you know, you're just getting started if they're like 12 or 14 inches. How, how, yeah. like, they have like a name. They, said, they're called like, like a, arm or... Uh, tortilla, tortillas de agua, because um, the, the, they use water. There's, okay. a, there's, a, there's a word that I had also heard... Tort- Sobaquera tortillas, which is like armpit tortillas, which is, I guess, That's slightly right. rude. We don't really want to say that because what they because they extend from your wrist all the way up your arm, and oh, I think wow. that's where the where sobaquera came from. But um, uh, yeah, tortillas de agua they call them as well. But um, you don't really see them um, in like Tucson. You you go out into rural Sonora and you see mm-hmm. them all the time. Tucson they'll they'll still have super thin tortillas that you won't get at stop and shop in new york but uh there they'll be like 12 14 18 inches or whatever is is the ones i find it's like as big as the biggest cast iron pan i have wow they freeze well and i'm glad i have some i want to come over i'm gonna read your stash <laughs> we'll make we'll Long make Island is a little crisps. closer for me than 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 yeah. sonora <laughs> yeah so what are some come other on. memorable things that you ate while traveling with her I, I am a little, well, I, I don't know the cuisine very well. I know that I'm slightly obsessed with Sonoran hot dogs, but what are some other things yes. that you've eaten? Well, that first trip on that road trip where Linda's dear friend and our photographer, Bill Steen, who is as deeply rooted in this place, both in Tucson and Sonora as Linda is, mm-hmm. was very kind. And he took us, um, he took me, the, the gringo from New York, um, uh, to see what there was to see and to eat what there was to eat. So we went to El Cuero Canelo and had a hot dog, and that was stunning. You know, you, you kind of have to, like, dislocate your jaw like a python in order to get <laughs> to eat it. Um, but then on our trip down... Well, describe that hot dog. What, what, what's in it? What's on it? <laughs> it's It starts with um, a super soft uh, bolillo Mexican roll, which is like a soft, soft bun split on the top, and then uh, a sp- uh, a layer of refried beans on the bottom. The hot dog itself is wrapped in bacon, as if a hot dog couldn't be improved, but it can be. <laughs> and then, yes. and then you go to town with um, with mayo, mustard, uh, chilies, uh, salsa, onions. Um, they often they'll you'll serve a little roasted banana pepper on the side when you get it from a from a hot dog truck. And um, that is heavy. and yeah, it's as with so much Mexican food, it's all the stuff, um, all all the little chopped up condiments, guacamole, everything that you can put on top of it, um, uh, that makes it super special. So yeah, it's like as Linda will will say this all the time, like Mexicans will take some Anglo thing and just make it better, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so so there was that. And then once we crossed the border and went down south, uh, down toward the Rio Sonora, Bill had set us up with meeting folks for lunch, you know, fa- family, uh, families who he knew and Linda knew for many years who were like really, really good home cooks. And so there was like classic things that they served us, like the um, Sonoran cheese soup, the caldo de queso, which unlike what you might get in a 
Tucson restaurant with gloppy melted cheese inside. It was like a clear, clear broth, mm. um, glistening with fat on top, and then chunks, discrete chunks of farmer's cheese that hadn't melted. It didn't look at all like a, you know, like a, um, like a French onion soup, like you'd Mm-hmm, you want to mm-hmm. crack that lid yeah, yeah. <laughs> and eat the glop. I mean, it's delicious too, but, but it was the, the, the thing was, it's just, it was light and fresh and super delicious. Um, I had never heard of, uh, chiltepin chiles before, which are, which are native to the desert and ancient. And they're like little, little tiny, uh, round chilies, like pellet size, BB sized, red, dried, super, super hot. Um, they're served at the table so you can crumple them and sprinkle them over your food. They, they amp up the heat quite a bit. They don't add much of their own flavor, but they do add a lot of heat. Mm-hmm. They come with little tiny wooden mortar pestle things, like maybe an <laughs> inch or two. Because if you ever make the mistake, as I once did, of crumbling them with your fingers, oh. you oh, never ever touch your fingers to your eyes like for the rest of your life because yeah. <laughs> you'll, burn, you'll regret that pretty quickly. Um. And then, of course, there's albondigas, the meatballs, um, mm. that were a, a dish that her grandmother made for her grandfather when he'd come home from the hardware store for lunch, which um, I made the recipe, and it was super delicious. Also very light, um, not heavy, and, and uh, simple, but, but just wonderful. Yeah. We actually have a clip of her talking about them, too. Let's listen to that. Albondigas are little meatballs that are boiled in chicken broth. My grandmother used mm. to make them out of probably ground chuck, and they'd have a little rice in them, and a little cilantro, and onion, of course. Mm-hmm. And then they she'd put a little, she'd chop some fresh mint into there. It would make it not taste minty, but fresh, just really fresh. And then she put that in the chicken broth and served that to my grandfather for lunch. They were delicious. I remember going over there when I was a little girl. I'd always turn up about, we lived in a compound and there was a little path to my grandmother's house behind our house. And I would trot down that little path and there would be a hot lunch waiting for me. <laughs> they might not have been, I didn't eat much, I was only five. But they weren't maybe expecting me, but they got me anyway. Cause the albondigas are so good. My grandmother, she always had an ice table. And she picks uh, maybe some lamb chops or uh, some roast meat and potatoes, and um, my aunt was in town. She made gorditas. My grandmother didn't make tortillas, but my hair sister did. Hmm. So there'd be fresh tortillas. And tamarindo. It's a drink made from the tamarind plant, and it's completely thirst-quenching. It's just tart enough to quench your thirst, and you sweeten it with brown sugar or piloncillo which is a kind of a raw sugar in Mexico. It didn't be too sweet. Yeah. The tamarindo, that's something that I know that you, when we were talking earlier, you said she has a real particular love for. Yes. Um, it's, a, it's a classic thing that goes back years and years. And in fact, um, her grandfather, Fred Ronstadt, um, has a book called Borderman, which is a, a, a kind of a posthumous m- memoir, biogra- autobiography of his life on the de- Sonoran Desert. Mm. And he mentions making agua de tamarindo as a young child in the Sonoran Desert in the, I guess, late 1800s. Um, and it hasn't changed. You know, it's, you, you go, you get the dry tamarind pods, you peel them, boil them, strain them, 
and then add brown sugar, um, water, and ice. And this was actually it, this was the my my one great triumph. It's very tricky cooking for Linda because she loves food and she has very distinct food memories. But when you do it, you got to get it right. And <laughs> I was so pleased. I was so nervous when I made it for her in her house. We were doing our our due diligence and our book research and making recipes when we could. And I had never made agua de tamarindo before. I mean, but how complicated could it be, right? You, you, you boil these pods. The pods look kind of yucky and stringy, but you clean them up and take out the seeds and strain them. Mm-hmm. And when she tasted it, she said, this is great. This is what I wanted. And um, that was, that was uh, quite an experience because she doesn't always say that. We had mm-hmm. tried, I had tried to make bread with her, and that um, didn't go as well. <laughs> Because she has, she knows what she likes, and that's one reason we don't have a bread recipe in the book. Is because I couldn't quite. <laughs> you, you never nailed it. <laughs> we tried. We tried like eight loaves. We tried. Oh my because god! Because she had um, a recipe that she knew by heart when she was a hippie chick in Malibu. She'd make this bread, this wheat bread. It was based on a Fanny Farmer cookbook recipe, but she um, adapted it by adding um, whole wheat flour and using mol- molasses and honey instead of white sugar. And she said she would make it by heart. And in fact, the Feels Like Home LP, uh, from which we mm. stole the title for the book, yeah, the yeah. back of the LP has a picture of this beautiful loaf of bread that she made herself. Oh so my God, that's amazing. She, really, she sells herself short when she says she's not a cook, and, and, and maybe not because she was on the road so much. But sure. she knows cooking, and she's done it. And she, and, and she certainly knows food and, and is very, very precise. I imagine... It must have been this hellish in the studio with her making music as it was in the kitchen making <laughs> oh, bread. Yeah, because I, I, I tried one. We were kind of like winging it with the, with the molasses-honey ratio. And the first one was too sweet and the second one was too gummy. This was like real hardcore, genuine kneading and rising and proofing and all that. And I was very proud of it, at least how it looked. But then she'd taste it and she'd say, nope. <laughs> so we tried. And we <laughs> try, had one that was... Try we, again. We cut back the proportions. Six hours later. Again. I think we had a Goldilocks loaf at one point. Um, and, uh, but I think... I don't think we remembered like exactly what the proportions were, so we couldn't put it in the book. And besides, it wasn't it wasn't Sonoran anyway. It was, right, 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 right. It was Malibuan, so it yeah. didn't didn't quite work. But, but it yeah, was I fun. I think though. it spoke to that like that level of sensitivity <laughs> she has. Yeah, right? yeah. And, yeah. I can mm-hmm. only imagine what it would be like in the studio making music with her, where like every note has to be exactly exactly how she's hearing it. You know, when I listen to her talk, there are all these little moments where I'm struck by how sort of poetically she sees things. Mm-hmm. And it must have been amazing to spend all this time with her. So, you know, when you're thinking to yourself about the experience of writing this book with her, what do you think about the most? What really struck me in working on this book with Linda was the depth and level of collaboration and how closely involved she was with every page, every sentence. Um, Basically, um, not to give too much detail uh, how it all worked came together, but there, I had from the, traveling with her, I had a ton of audio from audio interviews. I had a lot of notes from interviewing her at home and on the road. And then we would talk about what we wanted the book to be about. Once we decided it wasn't going to be strictly a cookbook with like 30 recipes and just that, we said, well, we, we need to include people in your life, basically tell the story of Linda Ronstadt um, before L.A., so her own memoir has about 
maybe 20 pages of Tucson before she goes to LA and becomes rich and famous. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book starts in Tucson and goes backward in time. Um, so she knew a lot about that. Um, obviously, there's a lot of documentation about her family, but I, w- I worked on the draft and talking with her, but then she would um, make it in her voice. We would, we would go back over, over the language. Mm-hmm. Um, she knew exactly how she wanted to start the book. And she wrote this, this first section where she said, I want to be sitting on the bench, looking out over the plaza in Banamichi, the little village that I keep going back to in Sonora, where my grandfather uh, grew up, near where he was born, where my great-grandparents raised him, uh, thinking about my great-grandmother, about whom she knew a little bit, but not very much. And so that was the scene that she wrote, and then uh, we kind of took it from there, because from there it becomes like this reverie about this place and why it's so special to her, and even though she's been all over the world and lived in many places, uh, her heart keeps coming back to this part of Mexico. And she believes in, in like, genetic memory, like, you know, it's somewhere in her genes, in her body, in her soul, that makes her feel at home there. And that's where she feels at home. So um, that that sent us in a in a direction of researching the life of her grandmother, her great grandmother, Margarita. Mm-hmm. There are papers. There's Ronstadt family papers that have been collected at the University of Arizona History Museum, and the librarians there were very helpful. And that's when we were looking through, getting some of those letters that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. um, from the 1800s and letters from the early 1900s from between her grandparents. And we had them translated, and we we were able to kind of bring this mysterious woman, uh, great grandmother Margarita, uh, to life a little bit, mm. to, to the extent we could. There's only a handful of letters that survived. She died um, at 53. She was pretty young, and she had lost a bunch of children, and she had a hard life. Um, but one one goal we had in this book was to tell. Uh, women's stories in Linda's family that hadn't quite been told. Like her, her grandfather has a memoir. You hear a lot about Gilbert Ronsett, her dad, and who had an article in the Times about him. And you hear about the others, but you don't hear about grandma and you don't hear about great grandma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or her friend Katya, who's a, a, dear, a dear heart and her, her, one of her oldest and closest friends in Tucson. And a great cook as well, who's very much involved in keeping a lot of these food traditions alive ancient, ancient food traditions and Spanish food traditions, colonial food and things like that. So yeah. she's very connected and rooted there. So that's, that's what was so intriguing about this project that made it so interesting. Yeah, one experience to really go back to. Oh, man. This sort of place of origin and really dig deep. Thank you so much, Lawrence. It was so fun talking with you. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Linda Ronstadt and Lawrence Downs are the authors of Feels Like Home, a song for the Sonoran borderlands. You can find that recipe for those albondigas, the Ronstadt family meatballs, at splendidtable.org. Coming up, Natalia Molina with the amazing story of her family's historic restaurant, the Nayarit in 1950s Los Angeles. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Francis Lamb, and you're listening to the show for Curious Cooks and Eaters. From Linda Ronstadt's Sonoran Desert, 
to the Mexican coast and back up across the border to Los Angeles, we arrive at Natalia Molina's story. Dr. Molina studies issues around race, place, gender, and culture at the University of Southern California, and I guess you'd say she's pretty good at it. I mean, she's not just a professor there. Her title is literally Distinguished Professor, and she is a recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, which is usually referred to as the MacArthur Genius Grant. She's also the granddaughter of Natalia Barraza, a Mexican immigrant in the 1920s, who owned a restaurant called The Nayarit in Echo Park, Los Angeles. Dr. Molina writes about it in her new book, A Place at the Nayarit, and tells a story that really digs into what a restaurant can mean for a community. So hi, Dr. Molina. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Francis. You know, today we think of L.A., right, as being very Mexican. But what was the city like when your grandmother arrived from Mexico in 1922? I think first we should remember that Los Angeles and what we think of now as American West was originally Mexico. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S. war with Mexico in 1848... Mexico ceded one-third of Mexico's land. And so when my grandmother arrived to Los Angeles, she arrived to a place that was once Mexico. And there were certainly markers of that. But in general, the Mexican population had declined. They had really mm. suffered after the war. And then my grandmother, along with tens of thousands of Mexicans, arrived in the 1910s into the early 20s fleeing the Mexican Revolution, but also seeking opportunity. This is a time of great development in the American West, mm -hmm. land development, building railroads, agriculture because of water development. And so she was one of those Mexicans that came seeking opportunity. What made her unique was that she was a woman. It mm. was mainly men. Uh, they mainly would come do work and often return to Mexico but she came on her own and she clearly came seeking something more than working for someone. Yeah. And how did the city change by the time she opened the restaurant, the Nayarit, which was, I think, 20, almost 25 years later, right? So Los Angeles goes through a great period of growth in the late 19th and early 20th century. Los Angeles has what we call boosters, people that are trying to get people to move to Los Angeles. There's all kinds of campaigns, none of which involve Mexicans, right? The agriculture I just told you about, they would yeah. advertise the orange groves, absent of Mexicans. They mm. would advertise the palm trees and the mountains, absent of the laborers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so it was a time that the city was growing in terms of real estate and business, all sorts of things. But in terms of who performed the labor to make this happen, mm -hmm. they were absent. And so it was yeah. a really kind of bifurcated place that remains so today. Yeah. But let me get to the actual book. And you begin the book with this really fascinating little object, this, begin, this little bit of history, because you found an old newspaper ad that your grandmother placed back in her old hometown in Mexico, uh, if I have that right. And it was an ad for a restaurant, but it was also like kind of like a come visit Los Angeles, sort of like a a homespun tourism ad. What did that ad mean to you? That ad popped for me, and it did so at many levels. One, as I just mentioned, 
Los Angeles was really good at promoting itself, not just through Hollywood, mm-hmm. not just through the media, but that you had real estate developers, that you had even public health officials. My first book was on public health. Uh, they used to try to attract disease, people, disease, people with tuberculosis, like come to LA, we've got great air, you'll heal, <laughs> right? Like the, LA was always promoting itself. And now you have this Mexican immigrant who's like, oh, I can play that game. I mm. see what I see what I have in that. And so one, it's super bold. On yeah. the other hand, she's not great at it, right? Like she's this Mexican immigrant who's working all the time. And so it's like, come see Hollywood and Vine. And it's actually not really Hollywood and Vine. It's like the stock photo of Hollywood, uh, Capitol <laughs> Records. Come see Wilshire Boulevard, MacArthur Park, which really aren't, uh, you know, isn't a tourist destination. Come see City Hall, which yes, it's notable. It's the tallest building in LA when it's built but who comes to see City Hall, right? <laughs> and then she's like, but come eat my food. Yeah. Um, her pitch to Mexicans is on, though. She's mm-hmm. like, she understands that L.A. might also be a foreign place to them and they may be uncomfortable. Mm. She understands that people might fear discrimination. And she understands that even if they're just on vacation, they may still want really good food. And so the ad is, you know, you will be attended to by Mexican workers. You can speak in Spanish and you will eat mind-blowing food. <laughs> yeah. See, that, that I love that because it's, I mean, what you were saying before, right? The context of this story is there was an active effort to whitewash the history of California, right? To like erase the Mexicans from the history of California as they're kind of building the story of Los Angeles. And I love that your grandmother the way she talks about that restaurant is very much about its Mexicanness, um, And there's an amazing story of how the restaurant became famous because of a fight that happened there. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yes, there were two famous boxers. There was the Mexican, Laura Salas, and he would go on to win the world lightweight championship title the next year and a Mexican-American, Art Aragon. And the you know restaurant had been open for a few months already, and yet they weren't really um, attracting the kind of clientele they had hoped to. She had already opened a smaller restaurant near Alvera Street. But that was a daytime restaurant. This was one that she wanted to attract different clientele at different times of the day. You know, workers mm-hmm. like her first restaurant, but then the people coming home from work, and then in the evening. But then those two boxers came to the restaurant, and they they had a fight. <laughs> Um, you know, just like this bar brawl and they, you know, the rumor is, or this part, I haven't verified that it was over a woman. Um, that was, uh, as the story was told to me and after that it ended up in the LA newspaper. So, you know, some of what I got from the book was from oral interviews, but as a historian and, you know, like a journalist, you have to cross check everything. And so I started, it was hard to find that story. And I finally did find it in the newspaper. And it, you know, pretty much was verbatim what I had heard in the oral interview. But then I just, you know, you start going into that rabbit hole. And I went into these boxing blogs. And according to many of the blogs, they say that that fight at the Nayarit 
was what was credited with giving them a fight later on at the Olympic Auditorium, which is where the fights took place, because mm-hmm. they normally wouldn't have met given their different, um, I think their different weight classes or their different statuses. And so that was always the, you know, kind of the the fun story of, yes, there was this brawl here and now everybody wanted to see it. It was kind of like that early, you know, Instagram moment, like, oh, everybody's there. <laughs> Let's go there. But I think I love your interpretation of, um, to my mind, when I was reading your book, it was sort of metaphoric. Um, so what you write about and what the restaurant meant, which was, you know, in this city where immigrants often through their daily lives were making themselves invisible. I'm, I'm paraphrasing you right now. Like they were, they were making themselves invisible. They were going into spaces where they weren't being recognized, where they were sort of nameless, faceless workers. But in a place like the Nayarit, they could claim space, you're right, and they could unfold to their true dimensions and they could belong. And that's such a beautiful um, expression of what a restaurant can mean. In this case, obviously, it means two boxers are going to fight each other. <laughs> but for everyone else, it means, oh, a place where they could go speak Spanish and be with friends or meet friends and be in a place where, you know, they, they weren't invisible. They didn't have to feel invisible. I think that's, and I think that's such a beautiful um, idea and an understanding of what this restaurant means, what many restaurants can mean in lots of communities. But let's get to the food because I know you never got to meet your grandmother, so you never literally tasted her food, but you've had dishes she was famous for. So tell us about some of them, like the, like the shrimp albondigas. Oh, <laughs> I always think of uh, the food from from Acaponeta from Nayarit because it is a coastal town. Mm. We're kind of like the Mexican Forrest Gumps. Everything <laughs> is is shrimp, right? We have shrimp soup, shrimp empanadas, shrimp albondigas. You know those those meatballs. Yeah, that meatball soup, shrimp tamales, shrimp tacos. Uh, uh, camarones a la diabla, where it's made with this spice, and I'm starting to see that more and more on mm. a menu, on menus today. Um, so there's a lot of shrimp. The restaurant sold less of that because, especially at this period of time, high quality shrimp was difficult to procure. Mm, okay. um, and so she, you know, and I think also just where she was in her budget, right? So what she offers is sometimes lower price point food, right? So she mm-hmm. has lengua, beef tongue. But mm. if you've ever had tongue, you know, it's so tender and she would yeah. cook it in these spices with garlic and tomato, some tomatillo, um, patitas de puerco, you know, pig's feet, which she would also tenderize. So she had a variety of food. Um, another thing that she was really good at was taking parts of the dishes from Acaponeta, uh, from Nayari, and incorporating it into American food. So, for example, uh, gorditas, uh, you know, which we see a little bit more now. Mm -hmm. That's this nice, thick corn uh, pocket, and it's stuffed with ingredients, kind of like a taco. But Mm -hmm. the gordita, you would have to kind of fry as people come in, and you would have to make them, and it's just more labor-intensive. So she would serve more of a traditional hard-shell taco that you know people are used to seeing at a restaurant. But we, she would still do, she would still bathe it in this light tomato sauce made mm. from chicken broth, fresh tomato, a little garlic. Uh, so she would do these little things that would still make it feel fresh and mm-hmm. uh, connected to Nayarit. Oh, that sounds delicious. <laughs> I also read in the book that she would serve dishes from other parts of Mexico, though, like 
moles and flour tortillas, which are you know typically more from the north, you know, from uh, the the borderlands. Why why would she serve that kind of like pan regional food? I think there's a couple reasons. One, she did want to attract a wide clientele. You know, mm, okay. she did not open her restaurant in East Los Angeles. That first restaurant that I mentioned was near Alvera Street, which is um, on the edge, the northern edge of downtown Los Angeles. And when that lease was up, you know, she was right off of Sunset Boulevard. She could have gone two miles east into East Los Angeles to open her second restaurant and been surrounded by people who spoke Spanish like her, most of whom would have been Mexican. Mm -hmm. But instead, she chose to go two miles west into Echo Park. And Echo Park, even then, was a multicultural, multiracial, geographic crossroads. So she already knew she was going to be somewhere that would attract a wider clientele. Mm-hmm. And she was fine with, you know, also serving dishes that would appeal to this clientele. Um, but she then also, she had signs in English that also said authentic Mexican food, right? So she kind of wanted both. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that, during this time period, the 1950s and 60s, you have the growth of the Mexican population in Los Angeles and the, the greater American West. And that's because, again, you need laborers. It's post-World mm. War II. She opens her restaurant, again, on the heels of another war, the World War II, and she wants to ride that World War II prosperity. Mm-hmm. And it's also a time that we've imported Mexican workers through the Bracero program, the guest worker program between the U.S. and Mexico, which lasts until 1964, even though it's initiated because of World War II. So you have Mexicans coming from throughout the central plateau of Mexico. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. people aren't from Nayarit necessarily, but they recognize the sign, right? She doesn't name the restaurant El Sarape or, you know... El Sombrero or something, some mm-hmm. kind of Mexican icon. She wants you to know this is a place-based Mexican identity. And because mm. people in Mexico at this point, you know, really have a regional identity, a state-based identity, yeah. not necessarily a Mexican identity. And so somebody can say, I'm not from Nayarit, but I'm from Jalisco. I'm going to find something close enough to me there. Mm-hmm. And many people I interviewed, including people that work there, said, I heard of the Nayarit. And I went there to see what it was about because just the name made it stand out. Oh, interesting. Um, so obviously you were the granddaughter of this incredible restaurateur and, you know, you, you carry her legacy in that way. But what made you want to write this book? I think going back to what you said earlier about how restaurants can be a place where you can be your full self, claim space, and belong. Mm. Because I got to experience the restaurant in the tail end of it, I always had that sense that it was special. And even beyond that, when I look at who comprises my family, it took me years to realize they're not my my blood kin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're my fictive kin. Um, and by fictive kin, I mean the way that we all, the anthropologists talk about, you know, people that you call aunts and uncles, sometimes through ceremonies such as a godparent. But Mm -hmm. for me, my kin is a place-based kin. Mm. One, that they're Mexican and that 
most of us are from the state of Nayarit, but two, that they settled in Echo Park. They settled in Los Angeles and they chose each other as family. We kind of use that phrase now as chosen family and we think of it as a more modern concept, a more contemporary concept. But I see that with the workers from the Nayari. Mm. They're still friends. We just went on Sunday to the party of Ramon Barragan, who is one of the workers from the Nayari. He started as a dishwasher when he was 17 years old. My grandmother trained him to be a cook because that was the other thing she did. She gave the workers upward mobility. And when he was ready to start his own restaurant, she gave him the seed money. And he opened a restaurant a few blocks east of her, also on Sunset Boulevard, called Barragans. And he went on to open two more restaurants. And so we're celebrating his 92nd birthday. And I th- I call him Theo. Again, it took me years to find out he wasn't my uncle. <laughs> um, his daughters and I, you know, two, two of us even look alike. So everybody likes to joke around like, wait a minute, are we really not related? <laughs> um, but it is that way that you become family. You know, so many people at these kind of mom and pop restaurants work there 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, so I really wanted to get at that, how you can feel at a certain restaurant and what that means because of the food there, because of the connections you make. And that sometimes those connections enable you to go somewhere and move through the world more freely, right? Yeah. So you also see the workers that they would go out together. They would go to the Macombo. They would go to the Ambassador, the Palladium. They would get dressed up and go dancing at another Mexican restaurant. So it's it's this world they created. It's about placemaking, but it's the worlds that they create both in that place and that allow them to explore the world. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Natalia. Thank you so much, Francis. Natalia Molina is author of A Place at the Nayarit, and that is our show for the week. If you don't mind me, I'm going to go find a recipe for shrimp albondigas. Talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Shafford, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jenny Lupke, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Special thanks this week to Jenny Cataldo for recording Linda Ronsnat for us. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. APM Studios.